Comfort Monk podcast. Uh, we've got a guest host this week. Who? Mike Jones. Hey, y'all. Sorry, that was cheesy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so we had Mike come on to talk to Vanessa from the band Pylon. Um, and Mike is a similar to us, is a big fan of their music, and he's kind of who I consider to be like Columbia's resident Athens expert. Uh, <laughs> and just seemed, honestly, Vanessa was one of the first people that we thought of for the show, and you were probably the first guest host that came to mind whenever I was booking stuff. So it took a while so to make it happen, but I'm really, really glad we got you in to, to chat with her because, like I said, I love their music, and I thought you might be the only person who could do the this conversation justice. Well, I'm flattered y'all thought of me and uh, uh, let me do it. It was an amazing experience, and I'm super proud of y'all for uh, this podcast or this particular episode and all the other uh, episodes y'all have done. Uh, y'all are doing an amazing job well thank you man it means a lot that you took the time to to help us with this one too man i know you guys must have had a pretty good chat because it went fairly long which was exciting we always i think it's always honestly the longer the better typically because you're just going to get to more you know just going to cover more territory but that being said, you were there. I wasn't. I haven't heard this conversation yet. Did it go well? Was it a, amazing? Everything you'd hoped it'd be? Was it? What, it was, what was it like? Amazing, because not only have I been a Pylon fan thirty plus years now, um, but uh, to, to be able to talk to somebody that I've uh, had been a fan of their band for so long, but also as an interviewer, um, I've done lots of interviews with my radio show, which you know the whole point of. The radio show I did before was uh, interviews with local bands, um, and in radio, we you know you're also limited uh, time wise. Um, but Vanessa was an interviewer's dream in that basically you would just ask a question and she answered it so thoroughly and completely. And uh, so there was one point where I was just sitting there like checking off questions on my list as as she answered them. You know, I, I, I would ask an initial question and she'd cover five or six in one swoop. So, uh, and, you know, getting a lot of really good information on Pylon. And another thing I want to point out to any of our listeners, Mike uh, referenced his radio show earlier. It's This is a show that is just legendary around here in Columbia that has been on the air for quite a while now. And uh, it's called the Columbia Beat. So if you're in the Columbia area, tune in to 90.5 w actually dylan i have an asterisk there we got uh waylaid by uh covid um because uh it's really you've been in that room it's it's too small to put yeah absolutely so i guess the show's not currently on the air then. right hopefully after covid we'll be back um i hope so too man that's that is a treasure for the scene for sure thank Um, you well mike thanks again for for making this happen and uh, you know, we like to keep this short so we can get to the real good stuff, which is you and Vanessa. Um, but yeah, thanks again. We can't really tell you just how much we appreciate it. And yeah, I we got to get to I can't tell you also <laughs> how much I appreciate y'all having me. All right. So on behalf of Comfort Monk, this is Mike Jones's chat with Vanessa from Pylon. Enjoy.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest edition of the Comfort Monk Comfort Monk podcast. My name is Michael Jones, and uh, I am with WUSC FM and HD One Columbia. Uh, that's the local college station on the University of South Carolina campus. And uh, I would like to thank Dylan and Eddie for asking me to co-host tonight. Um, and I'm because they know how much. Uh, interviewing our guest tonight means to me. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to just jump in straight into it and introduce from the brilliant, legendary, iconic, uh, I don't know if I have any more superlatives I could throw in there, um, Pylon from <laughs> Athens, Georgia. This is Miss Vanessa Briscoe. Hey, how are you doing tonight, ma'am? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Michael? Excellent. And we want to thank you so much for being here. And also uh, offer our congratulations on the uh, just recently released Pylon Box set called, appropriately enough, Pylon Box. Um, how are you feeling right now? Oh, I'm feeling uh, great, really. I'm feeling overwhelmed uh, all the attention and uh, love that we're getting for putting this out. Uh, it's just kind of mind-boggling, really. Everyone that's seen it or heard it, <clears throat> loves it and I mean you know I'm sure there are people out there but they haven't you know said anything maybe they're being nice I don't know <laughs> well the ones who have said uh, things and there's lots of reviews and articles online um and the people uh it unanimously um, people are uh, flipping out over it, I guess, to put it lightly. Um, at 8.5 from Pitchfork, uh, mag uh, article in Pace today. Uh, Y'all are just everywhere. Um, when let's, I want to take everybody back to the beginning. Um, and uh, y'all's origin story is my favorite, favorite band origin story ever. Um, so I'm just going to uh, get you to tell it. Um, so take us back to you coming, you came from, uh, would you pronounce the name of your town? Because there's an ongoing debate in my family. I'm, a, I'm originally from a town called Decula, Georgia. It's spelled so it, D-A-C-U-L-A. Decula. Okay, De okay, there's an ongoing debate in my family if it's Dacula or Decula. And they're all from Athens. They don't really know. <laughs> so I will settle Oh, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. That's been an ongoing debate for years. Um, so you came from Decula and went to the University of Georgia? Yes. Uh, I, Decula is a very small town halfway between Atlanta and Athens, almost exactly. And uh, I only ever applied to go to one college, and it was the University of Georgia. When I was in high school, I was drawn to art and I was drawn to drama and to writing and several other things, but, you know, art went out for me, and uh, the program at the university was, you know, it was held in very high esteem uh, by many people throughout the Southeast. It's the only program I applied to, and it was right down the road from where I lived, so um, I went from there, um, to uh, going to the University of Georgia Art Department. Uh, it was founded by Lamar Dodd, you know. Uh, they brought him here in the 40s. And uh, uh, we had an amazing bunch of professors there. Uh, we had Judith McWillie, who's my friend to this day. 
Uh, he taught color theory. Um, we had probably, uh, you know, just just the most incredible people. Uh, Jim Herbert, uh, he was also a filmmaker. He taught painting, and he made a couple of the REM videos. Uh, and then uh, our beloved professor, Robert Croker, he, the last year um, that uh, he was there, which was 77 through 78, he knew because of the political situation within the art department at the time, he wasn't going to last another year. So he threw it all in with the students and he did everything with us. Uh, you know, uh, we chased fire trucks and drew fires. I mean, we were expected to do 100 drawings a week. And I ended up in this independent study class taught by him. And that's where I met Michael Lahusky. Uh, Michael Lahusky uh, later was the bass player for Pylon. But anyway, um, I'm just a country girl, but I don't know. I have my, have always had my own viewpoint of how I see everything. Um, and, you know, we were in critique one day and Michael had a drawing on the floor and somebody had stepped on it and put a footprint on it and uh, there were two people standing there you know talking about it and they're going well if the footprint was ever here perhaps you know the composition might be you know more exciting or there might be more tension and I just looked at him and I said how can a footprint be in the wrong place and I just started laughing and Michael's head just snapped around. Uh, he was a <laughs> suburbanite <laughs> of Atlanta, but he was more urbane than me. He was, uh, um, you know, real tall, skinny fella. You know, he was like someone who everybody looked up to. And from that one statement, he realized that maybe we were on the same wavelength, that we became really good friends. And, uh, so with this critique, you know, we would talk and, you know, then the groups of us, we'd go out and have beer and, you know, whatnot. And uh, I met his roommate, he was Randy Bewley. And uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, Randy had approached Michael in the fall of 1978 after I graduated, but I was still hanging around town waiting for my first husband to graduate. And, you know, I was going out, going to parties, going to see B-52s. Michael and Randy, uh, Randy came to Michael and said, let's start a band. And it, to them, it was going to be like an art project. You know, uh, Randy was like, let's have a goal. We're going to go to New York, get written up in New York Rocker and then disband. It's like an art project where you have a project, then it's got to have, uh, you know, like an exhibit or, you know, an end purpose to it. And so um, Michael agreed and um, then they had to decide on instruments and um, uh, Randy found them some very inexpensive uh, guitars and a bass at a pawn shop. And, uh, you know, they started, Michael was playing bass. He kind of, uh, on the, the encouragement of Randy, had decided that would be his instrument because he was kind of drawn to how it sounded 
And also he looked at four strings and he was like, well, how hard can this be? You know, <laughs> it's got fewer strings, you know, and plus it's kind of the driving thing in the band probably. And, you know, they just started practicing together. At first it was like Randy on drums and Michael on bass, but they weren't getting very far with that. So then Randy and Michael just had this terminable long sessions where they were teaching themselves to play and uh, they would just keep playing and playing and playing until something presented an opportunity to change the riff a little bit. And then they would go with that. Well, upstairs from them was uh, the landlord for these uh, art studios is uh, Curtis Crow. And he's laying on mattress with Bill Tabor probably smoking pot, who knows. And, and listening to King Lear on tape, correct? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. You know, I read maybe. in uh, Party Out of Bounds that he had a class and didn't want to read the book, so he went to the uh, <laughs> library and checked out the book on tape. <laughs> well, that very well could be. I don't remember that, but you know, there they were. And they're hearing this racket through the floor and um, I think Bill looked over at Curtis and uh, said, hey, sounds like they need a drummer. No, Curtis was like, well, I'm a drummer. You know, he had played drums when he was younger. Um, he had had a band even in elementary school with uh, Jeff Walsh. He went on to be in Guadalcanal Diary and uh, such called Billy and the Kids. And he was beating on a cement bucket. So he had a little experience on up through high school. I think the last thing was he was playing with a group from uh, Marietta who come to UGA called Strictly American, and Jeff Wall was in that too. Maybe Marietta way as well, but I don't remember. So anyway, he went down and knocked on the door, and he said, hey, sounds like you guys need a drummer. Well, that must have just seemed like manna from heaven to them because they were right at the point they needed a drummer. That's a and nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it must have seemed like a miracle because there he was. And so he dragged Randy's drum kit in from the hall and started playing with them. Well, then they really started getting somewhere from what I understand. And they reached the point, they decided they needed a vocalist. I think Michael said they wanted to keep it very simple, you know, like one person on bass, one person on guitar, one person on drums, and a vocalist. And they tried out a couple of guys, but um, none of them, you know, worked out for whatever reason. And so they started using, like, found sounds, like uh, they'd recorded tapes from the weather radio, and that uh, they had a <laughs> record um, called Teach Your Parakeet to Talk, which just said things like, hello, how are you today? Hello, how are you today? You know, just over <laughs> and over, because it'd be in the hopes of teaching your bird to talk while this record was on, because it was so repetitious. <clears throat> and, you know, um, they decided this wasn't going to go very far either. And um, I think Randy said, well, Vanessa's a friend of ours. Uh, why don't we ask her? <clears throat> and so he came in to, I was working JCPenney at the time during the week. 
in DuPont on the weekends. And uh, he came in and asked me to try out that night. And I was kind of uh, shocked. I wasn't expecting anything like this. Although he claims he had teased me a few times at a party about playing in his band and playing the air organ or something. I don't remember that at all. I just probably <laughs> thought he was just like, you know, just chatting or something. So um, I want to go back to the, um, you covered most of my first 10 questions in that. So thank you very much. Um, I want to talk about the two goals um, of getting in the New York rocker and uh, playing in New York city. And how long did it take y'all to accomplish that? Well, um, playing in New York city, uh, that didn't take that long because we, they got me, I guess the formal beginning of the band was uh, February 14th, 1979. And um, we had our first show, I want to say it was March 9th, 1979. I have the date from a book. It was, yes, March 9th, exactly three weeks after your first practice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What about that? How nerve-wracking so, <laughs> was that? <laughs> I don't know. I was, you know, I guess I was young enough that uh, it didn't, <clears throat> it didn't really understand how important it was because it just seemed, you know, like it <clears throat> was a short-term project. So I wasn't too nervous. So uh, a couple of uh, shows after that, uh, the B-52 saw us. And at that point, uh, they said, you've got to come to New York. Uh, we're going to help you. So uh, Fred had a friend uh, who worked the door at the med club, Robert Molnar. And uh, he helped pass the tape to Ruth Polsky. He was booking Hurrah at the time, which was a big deal. Um, they asked us to come and play and offered several bands. Uh, they'll remain nameless, you know, lost in history kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, we were all like, no, 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 we don't think so. I mean, who were we to be saying something like that? <laughs> big club in New York. I mean. You were I'm, pylon. <laughs> we were just like, so uh, it wasn't that we were full of it, but we were confident enough in what we liked you know, and uh, whatever that we need that that wasn't an appropriate bill, whoever they were. And they said the gang of four and our ears perked up and but yeah, 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 the gang of four and we love them. I mean, I had that red single that had come out, I think in 78. Um, they had damaged goods on one side and two songs on the other side. I can't remember. Classic. But anyway, <laughs> you you know, you know which one. And we loved them. And so we said, yes, yes, we'd love to open for them. And on the basis of that, um, our friend Vic Varney, uh, who had played in the Totones, who we had opened for on our first show, a couple of shows, really, in Athens, uh, and later uh, was the guitarist and uh, singer uh, for his uh, project Method Actors, uh, he helped us uh, get booked into Philadelphia and Boston on the strength of that New York booking. He called up the club you in Philadelphia. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, he called them up and said, hey, 
they're opening for the Gang of Four in New York. How about they open for them in Philadelphia, too? Uh, they were like, Genius. well, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. Uh, it didn't, you know, Boston, there were some other people at the Rad. I can't remember. But anyway, we ended up uh, in August, you know, in August, not even a year since it started and not even six months since it got me. We were playing in New York City, opening for this huge British band at one of the hottest clubs in New York that was completely sold out. I mean, you know, you look over here and you see all these famous musicians you've seen pictures of. And um, <clears throat> I was a little speech by that show, just a little bit, but I was just like, you know, okay, I'm here with my guys. We'll get through this kind of thing. But Randy was a star. He was really so great. Uh, uh, but, I mean, he's so unassuming, too. People were reaching up and trying to touch him and shake his hand after we played. And, I mean, he was such a great guitarist. So um, that's how we got to New York. Now, we were not written up in um, – New York rocker at first. It turns out Glenn O'Brien from Interview Magazine was there, and he ended up um, writing about us in Interview Magazine. And uh, this is my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> it's your favorite part of the story. Let's make a nice night night story for you. Anyway, <laughs> um, he he wrote you know uh, a section about the Gang of Four and a section about us in this paper, and he said, "I don't know, uh, you know, what these kids are doing, but it sounds like they eat, you know, they listen to Deb for breakfast or something like that." And we were like, we thought that was so funny. We had no idea what Deb was. I mean, of course, years later, I know what Deb is, but. At the time, we didn't. And back then, there was no internet. Um, you know, we got a lot of our information from the magazines at Barnett's Newsstand or, you know, Popular Culture or over at the sixth floor of the library, I think, where they had a lot of magazines and art books. But nobody seemed to know who, what Dub was. So we made a song up about it. And uh, that was... Uh, called dad <laughs> before we get to your first single i had one question um as far as um now you had vic varney doing uh, a genius job of uh booking your first tour um but back then um when before um obviously i, I will never say touring is uh, mounting or booking a tour is easy in any era um, but back then, pre-internet, um, and y'all are not only pre-internet, but also um, inside of a music genre that was untested in terms of a lot of club owners uh, knowing if it was going to turn them a profit. So you you had to sell a new form of music. Um, and at that point, Athens didn't have the cachet that it does now. Um, what was touring like back in, in the late 70s and early 80s for a, a post-punk slash new wave band um, in, in terms of, did Vic take care of all the booking from then on out? Um, did y'all have to do no, some of no, it? No, no, no. Uh, he booked us maybe, uh, uh, helped us get bookings for about a year, but also uh, Michael took care of quite a bit of it. Uh, he had an answering machine, one of two among our friends in Athens, the other one was signed by Maury McLaughlin. He was uh, uh, 
the first manager for the B-52s. And so, you know, she also opened her address book to us and some other bands, and that helped quite a bit. Um, what we got to understand is how hot the B-52s were. Um, just the fact that everywhere they went, uh, they always made a point of saying that they were from Athens. They were like a complete breath, breath of fresh air. Uh, and what was going on in the music business uh, at the time, I mean, they were just so colorful. Um, and uh, it, you know, it was so exciting. We were nothing like the B-52s at all. But the fact that we said that we were from Athens and then having already been written up in Interview Magazine, it made uh -huh. it a lot easier, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, sometime down, I, I, I don't think uh, until maybe 1980 where we've written about a New York rocker, but that by that point, we kind of passed the time of, um, you know, saying, you know, uh, well, we met our goal. Um, <laughs> I think we just decided it was so much fun. Let's just keep doing it as long as it's fun. Right. And that's one of the things I respect about you is the, is the, um, Y'all would when y'all weren't having any more fun, or when the business threatened to eclipse uh, the music, uh, you y'all stopped. Y'all didn't say, you know, there were no albums that came out under any sort of pressure, or um, you know. So that's one of the the uh, again another one of my favorite parts of the pylon story. Um, so we've toured, and uh, let's bring us back to um, coming back, and it's time to put out a single. What'd you do? Well, um, we were trying to decide uh, which single to do, you know, what to do. We'd been to Atlanta and talked to Danny Beard. Michael Lehusky and I went one day, and um, we took what we were using for a press photograph at the time, which is really kind of hilarious. It was a giant um, piece of paper um, that our friend uh, White King had put um Polaroids of a song, and it didn't look like what you would typically use for a press photograph, and of course, most people couldn't use it at all, um, but we went and talked to Danny, and he became interested in us, um, and at that point, he had put out the B-52's first single, which was uh, Rock Lobster, which was like a huge hit, you know, all over the place, and I think uh, when they signed to Warner's, you know, he had to promise to not press anymore. So, so uh, but it did very well for the time, uh, like somewhere between 17,000 and 20,000, which was kind of unheard of for somebody that is just a tiny label and is kind of patching their own distribution together or whatever. And he also put out a single by a, uh, Kevin Dunn called Kevin Dunn and the Regiment of Women, and uh, he was one of the guy, the main guys in a in Atlanta band called the Fans. So he said that he would do a single for us. We discussed it and we thought, well, let's do two of our more popular songs. Let's do the Human Body and Feast of My Heart. And uh, we were practicing, and sometime. Around this time, or slightly before this, is when Chris Raz came and uh, recorded us uh, in our home uh, practice area, uh, which was also our art studio. 
And that is where the Raz tape comes from. He basically did a field recording of us. So you can hear maybe what those might have sounded like as a single. But when we went into the uh, studio finally to record them the first day, um, we played them. And then that night when we went back and listened to the tapes and we were talking about it on the phone and talking to Danny, we were kind of uh, disappointed because, well, they just, We'd probably practice them to death. And so we talked Danny into letting us uh, spend the second day, which would probably have been the mixing day, into recording two more songs and mixing them. And so we did two of our newer songs. Uh, we did Cool and uh, we did Dub. And Dub at that point, you know, didn't even have an ending to it. So, um, and then when we heard it, we realized we've, done the right thing because uh you could you, you know you could just feel that is uh the energy because uh it wasn't ever rehearsed <laughs> <laughs> am i muted okay um perfect so you are an interviewer's dream because all of my i'm checking off all my uh questions as you continue talking. So <laughs> I oh, want to thank awesome. you for that. No, it's wonderful. Um, I want to thank you for that. Um, so you go in to record the two songs. You come out with two entirely different ones, a lot uh, more, um, a lot newer than uh, what you had intended to release. Um, but I want to circle back to the uh, Raz tape. Um, and for the listeners, um, Pylon just released the box set, as we mentioned earlier. And one of the extra discs on there is called the Raz tape, which uh, is, Ms. Vanessa said was recorded in their house um, by a friend of theirs. Um, and it sounds amazing. And a, particularly in the context of the time when there weren't a lot of home recording options um, for, you know, these days I could turn on my laptop and record an album, but um, back then that just was unheard of. So y'all had a really amazingly engineered and performed uh, demo tape pretty much straight out of the box. Um, so y'all have just recently released that. Um, so I just wanted to uh, clarify that for uh, the listeners. Um, and that's one of the additional discs on the pylon box. Um, so you record the single. Um, and then what? What happened after that? Well, um, it came out. It says 1979 on it. It was meant to be released in December. But it actually didn't hit the streets or the stores or anywhere until 1980. So early 1980, uh, we were touring the Northeast, and we were up in New York uh, for kind of a prolonged period. And, uh, um, well, for us, you know, back then, and we took it to all of the uh, record stores, and uh, that was kind of a, an exciting type of thing, and that is also very... Uh, makes you nervous because they didn't know who we were for the most part other than we were from Georgia. Uh, actually, one record uh, store chased us out of the uh, store into the streets what? screaming, I hate why? bands from Georgia. <gasps> no. Yeah, and I don't know why he was doing that. But he, you know, he ended up, you know, he ended up uh, being supportive later on. But at that uh -huh. point, I don't know why. But uh, 
anyway, like for instance, we walked in, well, downstairs at that point, it was downstairs uh, into the store called 99 Records. Um, um, and the lady, he was in there, she was this really cool lady. Um, I walked over and asked her if she'd like to buy some of our single. And this is an example of what would happen. And uh, she said, oh. And so she takes it out in front of me and she proceeds to play it both sides. And she just kind of, uh, you know, staring at the turntable and <laughs> I'm kind of shifting my from one foot to the next, trying to look through bins of records. And the guys were all scattered around the store to you doing the same thing. I mean, you know, it's like being auditioned, really. And Absolutely. <laughs> And then uh, she played both sides and uh, came over to the counter and looked at me and she said, I'll take two boxes. I'm going to London tomorrow. Wow. And Amazing. Was, <laughs> yes. And this is in, ended up being the lady who put together the label for 99 records uh, that put out ESG as an example. Oh, love ESG. Yeah. So she had majorly good taste that was a huge compliment absolutely and so, some point after that it was all over new york it was in every you know back then they put it in all the jukeboxes i didn't put it in the jukebox but it was very very popular and it was you know in all the jukeboxes in new york everybody was writing about it it was like one of the top um songs of uh 1980 and whatnot. And um, at that point, things started really happening and we were getting, you know, better and better dates. And uh, uh, at that point, Danny decided, you know, we should record an album. And so uh, I think in July of 1980, um, we recorded it. And it came out in November 1980. You are, of course, talking about Gyrate. Yes, Gyrate. Awesome. Okay, first album is under your belt. And uh, what I really love about Gyrate is it's so direct and so in your face. And it's just such an intense statement of purpose. Um, and that leads me into a larger question. Um, y'all have such a unified aesthetic. Um, were, was that just the natural result of um, the four of y'all being artists and, and having that advantage of not, you know, this, you didn't have the uh, burden of this is not what you do and this is how you do things um, that a lot of people uh, would have. Um, did, did, were there ever discussions about the aesthetic or did it just kind of flow naturally? Uh, I think we were all on the same life, wavelength um, in college. You know, of course, minimalism was very big. Uh, we, You know, our professor, Robert Croker, he directed the fans for, from Atlanta once using cards. And uh, I don't know how, don't ask me. He also painted using dice. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah, so there was this kind of... Um, thing about when you make a piece of art, you don't just see the positive space, you also see the negative space, the things that are left open. So I think that came naturally to us uh, to leave things um, more open. Also, uh, 
Because we were on the same wavelength, sometimes things just happened all at once, you know, like uh, the song Crazy was written all at once and uh, M Train. One of my favorites. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think Michael went to get a beer and uh, Randy put his guitar down and started feeding back and he walked over and picked up Michael's bass and uh, he just started playing that riff and uh, well Curtis was playing drums too and something about what they were doing made me start making up stuff and it just came out just like that and then Randy you know Michael came back from the bathroom and he's like what they're playing without me and so he picks up the guitar and tries to figure out something to do you know I think I think that we had enough confidence in ourselves that when something happened that was good to us um we were not afraid to continue doing us you know those happy accidents type of things um, right so, you know, that's just how we approached it. Everything, you know, I just tried to be open to whatever was going to happen. <clears throat> and I think the others were too. Nobody ever came home and said, hey, I've got a riff and, uh, you know, start playing a song or whatever. I've since learned, you know, people work in different ways. And I was very lucky that, you know, my initial um, project we were all on the same wavelength and completely understood each other. And there wasn't there wasn't a lot of talk, or it was just in, completely instinctual. Yeah, completely. That is beautiful. That is yeah. beautiful because <laughs> like across the board, musically, visually, y'all even have a font that you use. I mean, it's all so perfect and you know together. And and you know you see something and you get you know that's a pylon product. You know. Um, and I want to circle back. A lot of uh, that, your aesthetic was influenced by your time at DuPont, correct? The orderliness of the factory and um, things like that. You want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Michael Curtis and I, uh, we worked on the weekend program at DuPont, uh, I think uh, maybe starting in 78 or so. We started working there and it was a great job for the time we were working like two eight-hour shifts, and we were almost able to survive on that a week, you know. Um, but so one weekend shift. In the- weekend shift. They had rotating shifts through the weekend that were called the weekend workforce. Right. Uh, they had a thing going on, like you see at hospitals now, where uh, some of them where people would work two weeks one shift, two weeks another, and two weeks another shift. Mm-hmm. And so we just rotate through the day every two weeks. And then anyway, essentially have a week off in between? Yes, to uh, create or, um, you know, uh, go to a party or go see a band or, uh, you know, do what you had to do, you know, do your laundry or whatever. That's amazing. So, yeah. And at that point in time, Athens was very cheap to live in. It's not anymore like many college towns around uh, the country. You know, rents are going through the reef. Oh, we live in one, too, so uh, we know exactly how that goes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, anyway, you know, we were very fortunate. But the DuPont environment, it was very industrial, but it was clean industrial. 
and there were a lot of signs around uh, uh, telling you to be cautious or not to go here or about safety hazards <coughs> or whatever. And uh, the uh, yellow and black tape, like on the uh, edge of the uh, box here, you know, they put that on the floor in areas that you were supposed to be cautious or walk out, watch out. And the pylons, we didn't know what they were called at the time, but those were interspersed in areas like that too. And we really liked it uh, when the project got started. Uh, they had the idea that maybe they would just be uh, designated by symbol. Um, at first, I, I think one of the names they were talking about was diagonal. And uh, uh, it might not even say diagonal. It might be like a spray paint of a diagonal on um, a wall or some grass or <laughs> just showing a diagonal. Um I mean, this is way before Prince, okay? They <laughs> 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 were going to be designated by a symbol. Uh, you know, boy, how arty is that? <laughs> I read that some of your early flyers didn't have the date or venue on them as well. Well, there were only, you know, at that point in time, there was only one place we would have played. And if you got it up, uh, let's say the show was on Friday, you put the flyers up on, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday or something, and it said, you know, I think one of the ones you're thinking of just says FRI for Friday. Um, okay, you okay. Would know, you would know where it's supposed to be, you know. Gotcha. <laughs> and you want to let everybody else know where that is? Oh, uh, well, uh, you know, but different places. Uh, at one point, uh there were some late tie rooms, and then um, later on, there was a, a place that the B&L Warehouse turned into called the I&I &I Club, which was larger. And so we probably would have been there. Did you play the 40 lot much once it started? Yes, we did. We played uh, there a lot. But because the 40 Curtis, lot was there at the beginning. Um, Curtis started that, I, I want to say... Uh, was it 81? Um, for some reason, I'm thinking April 81, but I'd have to go back and look. But, you know, we'd already done quite a bit of touring, and he saw that most of these clubs were really pretty DIY. They had a sound system, maybe some lights, um, <coughs> one or two types of beer or a keg, and, you know, a little bar set up. <coughs> And a DJ, and that was it. And it's like, well, we can do that in Athens. So um, he, he started the club. It was named after uh, his former loft that they jokingly called the 40 Watt Club because it had a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> and my favorite story is there was a sandwich shop beneath it, correct? And they would have to go put two by fours to brace the. Uh, ceiling because they were dancing so intensely upstairs <laughs> yeah that's true it was a UD sandwich shop uh, which Paul Scales he was Curtis's partner uh, they were basically working on the beer license for UD sandwich shop and so uh, it was a dollar to get in and it was a dollar for beer and I think they had one kind at the time I want to say PBR but uh, maybe it was Budweiser. It's either PB or Budweiser, I'm remembering. Well, whatever it was they had, it was only a dollar. So 
You could go out with three bucks and have two beers and see a band. <laughs> that sounds like the best deal ever. <laughs> it was, but there was almost no overhead. But, you know, there was also not a whole lot of uh, equipment. I know I was talking with one of the members of the Ray Beats a few years ago, Pat Irwin. And I said, do you remember the time that you came to the 40 Watt Club when they were in the Sama shop? And y'all came in and you were all from New York and wearing these beautiful seats. And uh, Paul Scales has a crazy look in his eye and he looks at you and says, I found one, Mike. I think I can find another. <laughs> And so they must have like thought that, you know, fallen, you know, come down on Mars or something, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a club, they've got one mic and I think they can find another, but uh, he said, no, I always had the best time at the 40 watt. And it's been through numerous locations since then. Uh, how many Four is my guess. Is that right? I'm sorry. What? How many uh, permutations of the 40 watt have there been up till recently? Four is it four? I think it depends on who you talk to because you gotcha. know, moved <laughs> several times, you know, uh if you count Curtis's loft, see one, two, three, and then across the street four, eventually. Five, six. Maybe six? six. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I only started going there in the late eighties, so um anything before that I just hear about and um Try to picture in my head where the whatever's. Which one in did that you go to now. at first? Was it the one the on the tiny Broadway? little brick building behind the building where it is now? Which version? Oh, okay. Is that? Which is uh, the Caledonia? Well, okay. that 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 it was there twice. So the, I gotcha. guess that was the uh, fifth and the third. <laughs> so did we count it, the same building twice? <laughs> Well, it was uh, different people, I think. So, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now, let's move up to 1983. You go in to record your sophomore album. Uh, you decided to go somewhere different for that. Where'd you go? Well, uh, we had started recording at, uh, I think, in uh, <clears throat> late 82 or early 83. I'm going to say late 82. And, uh at a place called Christian Broadcasting in Atlanta. And it was a huge, enormous studio, very fancy. And uh, we had the same uh, producer uh, that we'd had on dry rate. And uh, what was his name? Well, I'm, I'm trying to remember, you know, I'm getting gotcha. older. Maybe I'll look at the back of the record. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so anyway, Randy said, uh, oh, Bruce Baxter, his name was Bruce Baxter. And he was wonderful. But his kind of philosophy of recording us was just to turn everything on and let us do what we did. And, you know, that's how it was. And uh, Randy was starting to experiment around with his guitar more and our songs were a little bit more complicated now. And he really thought we should get an actual, what he called an actual producer. I mean, Bruce was a producer too, but he was just had a different, take on it so he talked to Danny about it you know and talked to us and uh, <clears throat> Danny contacted uh, Chris Thamey from the DBs and Chris uh, <clears throat> took us to uh, Mitch Easter's drive-in studio which was uh, actually uh, close in carport off of his uh, family home you know in uh, Winston-Salem 
So it literally and, was a drive-in studio, y'all. <laughs> yes, it was. It was a close-in garage, and it was very cold out there, I'll tell you, in the winter. Um, but, the you know, uh, Chris and Jane and uh, Mitch Easter helped quite a bit, too. I mean, uh, they uh, they did a fantastic job, you know, with us. Uh, it, just, it was just a more drawn-out process because... We had different uh, schedules than they did, and we both toured with our bands. And so getting everybody together on the same page, it was kind of a a drawn-out process. Uh, But it finally uh, came out in July of 83, I want to say. I have... uh... Yeah. Um, so the, the, like you mentioned earlier, uh, Chomp was a lot more expansive in production, uh, kind of whereas uh, Gyrate is very straight ahead and matter of fact um, and minimal, um, kind of the four of y'all with uh, not a lot of overdubs or anything else. Chomp has some a uh, little more widescreen. What was the that was just, an, again, another natural that this is where we're going. Uh, was there a lot of experimenting in the studio? Or did you come yes. ready with those from the practice space? Well, there was, uh, you know, a lot of those sounds we were making already because of Randy was such a fantastic guitarist and uh, whatever. But some of the overdubs and the sound, you know, like the drums, uh, Curtis said, I want my drums to sound like Black Sea by XTC. You know, nice. I think every <laughs> drummer of the era, era wanted, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, Chris brought in uh, some equipment we hadn't used before into the studio, something called the noise gate, which was still fairly new at the time when he put them on the drums. When the drums would hit a certain frequency or whatever, it would trigger other sounds. It was almost uh, like kind of almost like random uh, type of thing. And also when he recorded me, he used two mics instead of just one. Um, yeah. So I think that uh, my uh, sound uh, of my vocals might have been better uh, because of that. I'm not sure. Um, but it's definitely, he, he got some good performances out of me for that record and also uh, the other members of the band. Yeah, it's hard to decide. I mean, there's so many great songs on uh, Chomp, and uh, it was it's such a forward progression without uh, selling out what y'all sounded like. And so it was, you know, the second uh, chapter in the story. Um, now, when uh, it also has that wonderful um, album cover, uh, tell us a little bit about that. For those uh, listeners that don't know, it's a dinosaur. It's a photo of a dinosaur, but um, the edges of the uh, LP are serrated, like this bit had a chomp taken out of it. Um, how did you go about doing that? Where it's photo taken, et cetera? Well, that uh, poster, uh, I mean, uh, the uh, the design came about. Um, we were traveling out west, and we all love postcards. And Randy and I saw a little tiny uh, gift shop in uh, Vernal, Utah, it was in a parking lot. Like, you remember when they used to have the, uh, you know, like the uh, camera stores and parking lots where you would drop your thumb off? (laughs) This was like that, only it was a gift shop. Nice. It was in in Vernal, Utah, 
which was the dinosaur capital of the world, and we all love dinosaurs. And so we ran over to the window, and the guy said, well, you can't come in. I've just closed. And they said, well, can we buy some through the window? And uh, we just said, you know, kept pointing at postcards. He flipped the thing around. Uh, give us 25 of that one. Give us 10 of that one. You know, we were getting them for everybody uh, because we like to do, you know, postcards while we were on the road. And uh, in the van, uh, Michael just fell in love with this one postcard of uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and uh, he took it and folded it over. And back then, the postcards had those little scalloped edges. He just folded it over and uh, said, here's our design <laughs> for a record, <laughs> nice. you know, folded it into a square and then looked at the back, you know, and it's white back there. We could see where things could be. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then they had to uh, contact this uh, photographer and um, I guess he, you know, he lived near there or something. And the, uh, the uh, uh, light bulb contacted him and they were asking permission to use it. He must have thought we were Fleetwood Mac or something because he was asking for a lot of money, uh, which would yeah. totally kill the entire budget. And uh <laughs> They're like, no, 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 no. We, you know, this is like, you know, this is a band, you know, they're really not on the regular radio that much. They're just a small band. And it's true. We were like kind of a self-contained unit. Uh, we did everything. We might have one person on the road with us, you know, like Papa Shard, he did the sound, but we all, you know, did different things. And, uh, so, uh, they, he understood that finally, and um, they they paid him for the photograph and for his uh, use for this album. And um, they said, um, and we'll buy 2,000 of the postcards. And so I think the first 2,000 had one of those postcards in it. Excellent. Yeah. Now, the tour after that, what? Uh, how extensive was that? Was this the U2 <laughs> tour? No, 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 no. This okay, is, we'll, get, uh, we'll get there, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, you know, this would have been prior to that. Uh, it might have been early 83. You know, we were already working on the record and we knew, you know, we were going to have to have graphics soon. I feel like, you know, I'd have to go back and look at the timeline. You can see a timeline I worked on on the Facebook page uh um, which yeah, you did a wonderful job with that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I, a lot of it came from posters or people gave me dates or they sent me tickets or something. But there's still a lot of holes in it. But, you know, uh, we went out west and uh, we went out there. I'm going to think in that incarnation, either three or four times we went out west, all the way to California and back. Um so Interesting was, thing I, know, I read that y'all um, made a point to see local, you know, not just to do the tour grind, but to see the check out the local sites and eat well and get lots of sleep. And um, I'm sure that made a huge difference to, you know, the, uh, how y'all felt and the quality of the shows, et cetera, because you weren't burning out. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, we were, you know, we were just a bunch of nerdy 
kids really i mean uh here we come with all have our cameras slung around our neck and laughing about everything (laughs) and you know out on the road and so yeah uh we went to see the grand canyon as one of them that's probably uh one of the most uh beautiful things i've ever seen and the pictures from that uh are on the back of uh chomp Wonderful. Now, um, so uh, right after that, bring, uh, lead us up to uh, the first retirement. Okay. Well, um, at some point in 1983, uh, we did have a booking agent uh, who's going to remain nameless in this story. We've told it a lot. I, I hope his ears <laughs> aren't burning or whatever. Uh. <laughs> But we had a relationship with them since we were self-managed. Uh, we would tell them where we wanted to go, when we wanted to play. Um, and he would just try to make that work and, you know, make some, you know, so we wouldn't, you know, lose everything going out there and maybe make a little bit of money. Um it was usually pretty easy for him. I think we had a West Coast booking agent too, but this wasn't them. Um, but anyway, at some point he contacted uh, uh, Michael uh, and he said, I've just got you, you know, booked into the best thing ever. Um, we've got uh, these dates for you opening for you too. And uh, Michael was like, oh no. <laughs> Because, well, I'll say this. I've got nothing against you two. Um, They're really nice guys. I like their music. But their audience at that point was not our audience. Uh, Right. We would really rather play a small audience who were there to see us and uh, that type of thing. And uh, we were just – so he was like – well, just talk to the band, see what they say, because Michael's like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. And uh, he said, they're going to probably say the same thing I am, but I'm going to talk to him. And so he talked to us and we were like, oh, no, because uh, it just seemed, you know, it would like when we'd open for the Talking Heads and the B-52s, because that particular audience, they were more likely to understand us than, let's say, a top 40 audience would. And uh, we uh, we said, no. But Michael went back and he said, okay, they've agreed to do a couple of the days, you know, just to keep there from being egg on this guy's face. And so we did them. And uh, it was very nice. But this guy, he said one thing to us that made us start really thinking. He said, if you're not going to do shows like this, why are you in this business? And we were, oh, why are we in this business? <clears throat> and so we decided, you know, that and a few other things. Maybe it was uh, time to just hang it up. I mean, uh, we were really at the top of our game. We were a great band live and people loved us. Uh, so we kind of went out, you know, on a good note there. Let's talk about your last show. Um, there's actually a really amazing document of it that got re-released in uh, 2016. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Uh, our last show was December 1st, 1983, and it was filmed for something called the Athens Show. Uh, the other band who performed that night were Love Tractor, who were really good friends of ours. And it was being filmed uh, for, uh, there was a proposal to make something called the Athens Show, which would have been on public TV, you know, sort of like Athens, you know, Austin City Limits. Uh, <clears throat> so um, it was filmed for that. And, you know, it maybe got shown once, but it didn't really go anywhere. Um, I don't, I don't know why, you know, for whatever reason. And years and years and years later, um, long after the DFA reissues, uh, sometime in 2015, um, Henry Ovings, who has Chunklet, came and talked to me and Michael. And it's like, I'd really love to put out a live record of y'all. There was this one tape. Um, from where y'all played at Memorial Hall, <clears throat> and it was broadcast over WUOG that I've completely worn out. And I think, you know, people might be interested in a live document, but there was a problem with the UOG tape and that it kind of cut out um, before our show was over. I guess they went off the air or went on to, you know, something else. And uh, so he started looking listening to all these tapes, and uh, I had a bunch of Randy's, I had a bunch of mine, and in this box of, box of Randy's tapes, he found a CD that had four songs on it from this particular show, and his ears perked up because quality was so good, and uh, we, you know, we were like, well, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. He was asking, you know, everybody, you know, how he could find out where this ended up, and he finally tracked it down, uh, he tracked down, you know, the actual tapes and uh, had them um, sent, you know, put, you know, on a digital, digitized or whatever. And we listened to it. We realized that we had a really good live document there. There's something that I never really liked to listen to or paid much attention to were board tapes or live tapes or whatever. Now, this had, for a live show, it had very good audio quality. <clears throat> it was a good performance, and it was a significant performance because it was our last one. And, I mean, we played a lot of uh, the songs that we need during the show. And, um, actually, um, when we decided, this, yeah, this is the tape, this is the one, and Derek Armstead got a hold of it. We started talking and, it, you know, at first it was going to be one album and realized there were enough minutes to make a double album. So God bless Henry because he put that out as a double album. I was at the release show for that and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I bought my much beloved uh, Pylon action figure there, <laughs> Pylon uh, Reenactment Society. Um so then uh, after your last show, that was it. You, you knew, you told everybody ahead of time, we're finished, we're done. Um, and right. so in 83, at the very tail end of 83, uh, y'all broke up and then um, took quite a few years off and came back in 89. What was the impetus for the Reformation? Well, it was actually, I think it was maybe later in 88 or something. I can't was it? Remember. Okay. I, 
Okay. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. You know, sometime through then. And uh, at that point, I was the mother of a young toddler. I'd had my first child at the beginning of 87. And uh, Randy had two children, too. And uh, we decided, well, this isn't the same as it's going to be, you know, if we reform as if when we were completely unencumbered. I mean, um, there were a couple of things that had happened. Uh, one thing that happened was this uh, REM had recorded crazy, and uh, we gotten a lot of attention from that. And uh, we were also in Athens, Georgia, inside out, and I was kind of flabbergasted by that. I went to see it by myself because my husband and I worked opposite shifts to take care of um, our kids and actually the door guy at the theater he looked at me coming in with some popcorn he went oh you're here to see yourself are you well yes I am no nothing to be yeah. embarrassed about and then I was <laughs> like just kind of <laughs> and uh and your husband's in it too correct whatever Yes, he's in a band called The Squalls. So he went to see it separately, or did you go back with him when he went? Oh, he went separately because we didn't use babysitters when our daughter was little. Um, gotcha. We pretty much just passed her back and forth. Um, so, uh, you know, I was just kind of like, whoa, you know, this, I can't believe, you know, because they didn't tell me it was going to have all this stuff about how much people love pylon and whatever. And it really just got me. So that happened. We continued to get fan mail. REM were like, you know, you should consider coming back. You know, one of them said, I'm not sure which one. We think the world is ready for you now. And nice. I, don't, it, I don't even know what that means, but it could be because they put in all this time, like, touring everywhere. I mean, R.E.M. played everywhere. Um, not that we were snobs or anything, but we were from before them, and there were not that many places to play and they were responsible really for creating this network of all these uh, smaller clubs uh, throughout, you know, the entire country, including in Columbia probably. Yes, absolutely. They play, uh, played a number of places here. Yes. Um, That's close by. And so, you know, uh, we came back in 88, 89 or whatever it was. And, uh, um, we got a manager, we got a, a bookkeeper, we got a merchandiser. Um, we opened uh, for REM on the Green World Tour. Um, can I tell my REM Pylon Green World Tour story? Yes, you can. Okay, this is the, I, I'm still not over this, and somebody reminded me this the other day. Um, my friend Heather and I went to see the B-52s last year at a venue that shall remain nameless, and were uh, shushed and told to sit down by the uh, ushers while we were dancing at the B-52s. And this brought up terrible, terrible flashback of the last show of the Green Tour, which uh, was just uh, celebrated its anniversary. I looked it up recently. Um, November. This was November 11th. Uh, so nine days ago, um, I think that was 89, correct? Was that wasn't quite 90 yet, was it? I think um, it was 89. I think you're correct. Okay, so November 11th, 89, um, Pylon opened for REM at the uh, Macon Auditorium in Macon, Georgia. Um, and my friend Mark 
and I had his dad drive us down from Columbia and we were over to the side and there weren't a lot of people on that side area. Uh, I think we'd gotten our tickets last minute. So it was that side that where you really can't see a lot of the stage. Um, but there was some people behind us who, when y'all came on the stage, we started dancing and the, uh, they complained and the usher came and made us sit down. So I have been told to sit down by the ushers at the two best and most popular dance bands of all time. Uh, and that was the first. And so when it happened again at the B-52s, it brought up uh, really bad memories of being told to sit down during y'all's set. But uh, you were fantastic. That venues like that are built for y'all. Just, I, I was so, I'd seen y'all at the 40 watt. I saw y'all later on that tour um, at Rockefeller's uh, in Columbia. Actually, went to see Concrete Blonde open for Sting and uh, actually left before Sting played um, so that we could see y'all set at Rockefeller's. Um, but y'all sounded fun. I, so I've seen y'all in a number of clubs over the years, but um, the auditorium was just, that, that was the acoustics of places that big were, uh, y'all sounded unbelievable. I mean, it's amazing in a small club, uh, like you point out in Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, like people get to dancing so hard, the air starts moving in the room like a giant speaker. Um, but just the sound of y'all in a, in a through a, a tremendous PA like that was one of the best shows I've ever been to. Um, having to enjoy it from a seated position, notwithstanding. Um, but thank you for letting me tell my. <laughs> no, that's amazing. You know, you know, this is, I guess, before they had a mosh pits or whatever. Yeah. Right. Hey, um, y'all. No, that was a good experience for y'all, the tour. And then y'all did some club dates after that, correct? Yes, yes. It was a very good experience. And uh, we had a great experience opening for the B-52s, too. We uh, opened some stadium-type things for them, like James Beach. And, you know, we went into Canada uh, and opened for them up there. Uh, it was, uh, you know, we were really doing pretty well and we were starting to play some of these smaller places that hadn't cities that had not had venues uh you know when we were first together like Rockefellers uh, I remember that place and also you know like Florida I don't think we'd played uh in Florida before but <clears throat> there were a lot of venues in Florida at the time also in Savannah um, you know, New Orleans, uh, well, we'd played in New Orleans the first time we were together. That's not true. But uh, there were more places to play, and uh, we were making, you know, an okay living at it. Uh, but at some point, uh, Randy decided that it was time to uh, call it quits. So uh, we broke up a second time, and uh, I, I remember getting an invitation to an auction from the fan club for y'all actually sold off your equipment the second time, correct? Yes, we sold uh, almost everything off except for, you know, the guitars. Uh, um, I mean, we were selling posters. We were selling like, uh, you know, uh, electrical outlets that you plug things into and, <laughs> everything uh, must go <laughs> everything everything that you can imagine and um so uh and also t-shirts i think there was a t-shirt for it too so we're that's what was one of those <laughs> <laughs> now before we um wrap up the second reunion um i want to discuss chain um i uh walked into a record store now granted this is pre-internet so 
um, you know, any advertisement you would have seen would have been an actual poster in the record store itself, or maybe an ad in Spin or Rolling Stone, or maybe even a fanzine. Um, but I walked into uh, Manifest Discs and Tapes in Columbia, completely unaware that y'all had anything out, and saw Chain and was like, what is this? You know, just it was so wonderful to immediately discover the, you know, existence of a new pylon album and then within five minutes own it and be listening to it um so talk a little bit about chain um again yet another beautiful progression from the previous album um tell us a little bit about the conception and recording of chain oh okay sure well we had uh we'd written some new songs and we had a manager uh jennifer blair we'd actually gone and done a few demos at uh john king's for it and uh um, she got a, a producer for us. Uh, um, uh, Gary Gary West, am I remembering correctly? I, I might be wrong right. about that. Is that correct? Let me check. I looked it up earlier. Did Scott Litt just master it, or because uh, I saw he his did, name in the credits as well? He did one song on it. Uh, well, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> Let me look that up real quick. That'd be embarrassing. I got you. You tell the story and I'll get the facts. <laughs> yeah, you keep looking. Um, anyway, uh, we got a producer uh, who uh, had done Thrumming Muses, uh, for instance, uh, at Fort Apache uh, Studio up in Boston. And uh, he, he came down and um, brought his sidekick down and recorded us uh, after... Uh, we'd been out for three weeks on tour. I want to say it was either the B-52s or R.E.M., one or the other. We'd been out on the road for three weeks, and then she got us booked into uh, uh, Reflection Studios in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, uh, which R.E.M. had also used. Uh, it was a huge studio, beautiful and, As did uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. I actually kind of, you know, I know you're not supposed to, but I kind of like Tammy Faye Baker a little bit. I don't know No, why. you got to love Tammy Faye. If you're, yeah, it's that's just part of, be, you know, watching television in the early There, there was something about her. She, I think, you know, she seemed like she was a lot friendlier and more open than she was saying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You ever hear a joke about her? Um, why is Tammy Faye Baker's face like a ski slope? Why? Because it's got three inches of base and one inch of powder. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, <laughs> I got your producer name, Gary Smith. Gary Smith. Okay, let me start over. So okay. our manager got Gary Smith uh, to... Uh, come in and produce this record scott lit had uh, done a song for us called sugar pop um, a great song yes while we were at a john king studio and we were making demos and he mixed that for us kind of as a gift to us and uh so uh we got into the studio with gary smith and went through all the songs played them and they're mixing uh, they're sounding pretty good. And uh, then um, not too long after the record came out, uh, Randy decided, you know, we needed to stop. I don't know why. I never did 
really find out why from him. Um, is uh, I guess it's his own personal business. We could talk him out of it anyway. <clears throat> so I've just like, well, this is the opportunity for me to change my life. I had uh, quit my job uh, being a Kinko's manager. And so uh, I decided to go back to school. I, at first, I thought I might be a teacher, uh, but it turns out I wasn't cut out for it. So there are a lot of nurses in my family, and uh, I talked to a couple of them and talked to some friends, and I went to nursing school. And so then I was a nurse for 21 years. Uh, sometime toward, <clears throat> Yeah, sometime toward the end of that, <clears throat> I started having some, uh, you know, Pylon got back together, I want to say, uh, 2004, Randy came to us and said, I miss y'all. Can we get back together and just play for fun? And we're like, I Randy, sure. So we did, and we got back together and played for fun. <clears throat> we played some festivals. Like we went, you know, we flew out to LA and played part-time punks. And there was something nice. called the Revolver Films Festival, which was up in um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina area. Uh, we played at that. Uh, we went to New York and played a anniversary show for WNYU. <clears throat> and uh, um, then not too long after that, and um, 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 February the 25th, 2009, uh, Randy had a heart attack while he was uh, driving, and uh, he passed away. Now, this was right before Supercluster Band would start it to kind of fill in the gaps of, uh, you know, Pylon could play all the time because Curtis was called out of town for like six months out, you know, out of the year for his job. And so we were doing this recording project called Supercluster. <clears throat> and the day uh, before we were about to go, do, go on tour up and <clears throat> North Carolina and up into the Northeast. Uh, um, he, you know, he passed away. So that it was, was the, the end of Taiwan. Uh, what now? It was the day before the tour, you said? Yeah, it was the day before we were supposed to leave, you know. Uh, and we were actually at practice and uh, he didn't show up. And I got very worried and I started calling around and he wouldn't answer his phone and so we just decided to just all go home and wait to hear from him you know we knew it must be something because he wasn't somebody to do something like that you know he wasn't flaky at all and about the time I got to the house uh, I got a phone call um and it was his ex-wife Robin and she had called called me and said, I see you've been calling. They just gave me his phone. He's here in ICU at the hospital. No. So we just dropped everything, went to the hospital. And um, I went back and saw him. And, uh, um, you know, he was in a coma. No. Uh, so that he never came out of it. Uh, his uh, sons, he were pretty young at the time, but they were of age. They had to make the decision, and, uh, you know, they took him off life support after a few days, and 
he passed very peacefully. And uh, so anyway, after, you know, that's about 2009. Later in 2009, uh, we put out uh, the second Pylon album on DFA. And at some point after that, the wheels kind of started turning in my mind. Uh, people were like saying, I would really like to get your album on vinyl. I can't find it. And I started looking and seeing somebody selling this for 50 bucks. You know, that's wow. just, you know, <laughs> people can't afford this. And uh, so I started working on the unglamorous part of kind of untangling our uh, business knot and getting things straightened out. And in the meantime, uh, around 2012, 2013, Supercluster uh, stopped performing. And, but it, up to that point, uh, Jason, who plays guitar, had taken over Randy's part. And sometimes BP Helium uh, came in as well from F Montreal and would play guitar too. So uh, I was just like, well, you know, I guess this is all over now. And, uh, you know, a, a few years later, 2014, uh, Jason came to me and he said, uh, we're putting together this thing uh, for Art Rocks Athens. And I was like, I knew what Art Rocks Athens was. It was a series of exhibits uh, that was going to show the relationship between music and art in Athens. And uh, he said, just let me stop you there. Cause I've been dying to ask somebody this that would actually know, is that going to, obviously COVID changed things, but is that going to continue? Cause I was at the first two and they were amazing. I don't know that they're going to do another, uh, you mean art rocks Athens? Yes, ma'am. Um, the first two were so incredibly fun. Um, for our listeners, the band, certain bands got back together. There were uh, jams of, you know, this band would do this band song with this other band. And there was an exhibit at the, um, your exhibit, Pylon exhibit is up. The por your portion that from the first Art Rocks Athens exhibit, correct? Yes. Uh, uh, now? And then, uh, you know, we, we were all um, art majors. So, you know, we all had art pieces in there. Uh, Randy, Michael, Curtis, and I all had pieces in that first one, which more centered on uh, painting and drawing and sculpture, you know, the mm. that side of the art. And uh, Jason was put, Jason E. Smith, uh, my bandmate from Supercluster, uh, <clears throat> He was put in charge of uh, putting together the music acts um, for this because people come into town, um, they they want in to be entertained too. So he said, you know, you could come in and sing. You can do anything you want to do. And uh, um, he was kind of flabbergasted when I, I said, well, I'd like to do pylon material, and the reason is is because that was the that was the scene that we came from. That was the era that we came from. Um, the art and music scene of 1975 to 85. Um, mm -hmm. That's that was you know where we were from, and I thought pylon should be represented. So I said I, I'll do it if you'll help me get together a band. So he basically backed me up with his band, Casper and the Cookies. And uh, 
we also had Michael come in and play bass on a song and that we did a side effects song and Poppy Shard from the side effects played drums. Awesome. And it was maybe uh, 20 minutes long. I'm not, I can't remember how many songs it was, maybe five or six and people just went, they loved it. And so I thought that's a great experience. You know, I'll just go on living my life here and, uh, about a year later, Jason contacted me again, and he said, that went so well last year. Art Rocks Happens is doing it again. Only this year, there's going to have a show that's going to have an emphasis on photography and film. Would you like to do it again? You can have more time. Fred Schneider is coming down. I was, I, like, wow. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah, I'll do that, you know, because Fred's an old friend of mine, and, you know, he's, like, always been so supportive of the Athens music scene, and particularly Pylon or any project I've been involved with, but especially Pylon. I mean, he's been there for us right from the beginning. I said, of course, but you'll have to help me get a band together. And he said, well, you know, uh, our drummer, he has a rotator cuff issue in his shoulder. He can't play. Uh, we'll have to find a drummer. And I said, okay, you look and I'll look. And I think about a week or two later, Love Tractor were playing um, Athfest downtown. And I'd gone to announce them. And uh, Curtis is there. And I was like, oh, Curtis, I'm glad to see you. Uh, Art Rocks Athens is doing this thing and they're going to play, uh, we're going to do the Pylon Reenactment Society again. Uh, will you play drums? He says, oh, when is it? I told him, he said, no, I'll be out of town. I was uh. like, oh, <laughs> well, do you have any suggestions? And he looked up at the stage and there's this drummer up there. I didn't know him. He said, get that guy right there. Nice. And I was like, all right. And I found out his name. And then I went in to practice with Jason and Kay. We were starting to work on things. And I was bringing in a keyboard player, a uh, pianist that I know named Damon Den from UGA School of Music um, to, you know, make some of the sounds that were on Chomp as an example. Because um, we did have some keyboards on that. Randy and I played some. So he does uh, beautifully replicating the M train keyboard. I was so impressed by that when I saw y'all. Oh yeah. He's amazing. And so uh, we got the, uh, got to practice and uh, he said, I found a drummer and I was like, well, I guess I'll keep my mouth shut. And I said, who is it? He said, it's Joe Rowe. And I was like, thinking, oh my gosh, that's the guy from Love Tractor, <laughs> the Love Tractor band, cover band, or, you know, it was half Love Tractor, half other people. What like, did they call oh them? What was the, the new I name? I think they, they were calling under? themselves uh, um, We oh, Love gonna... Tractor for that one. Um, that's there's right. Some, there's some other names that they've been known under, and some of them you can't say on radio. <laughs> we're not yeah. technically on radio, so. <laughs> oh, Okay. Well, We're just podcast. Uh, like fat track. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, we love tractor. So it was like, how perfect is that? So we practiced up and um, you know, in a month or two we played and it went over really well. Um, 
you know, we had more time, you know, done it before. Uh, Jason has spent more time studying and, uh, it was just really great. People were all about it. And then of course, Fred is like the headline act. So, you know, it's perfect audience for us. So, you know, that was over. I was like, wow, that was great. Well, um, a week or two later, Jason called me and said, uh, Dressy Bessie have heard about this and uh, they're coming down you know, to play around here and also in North Carolina. They wondered if he could open a couple of shows or play a couple of shows with them. And I'd had such a great time. And I guess it was so close to the event that I was kind of still kind of like had all the endorphins and things going from that. It was so much fun. I said, yes, of course. And then that's where our touring started with Pylon Reenactment Society. Uh, we just started getting calls from people that wanted to have us play in their town or um Y'all went festivals. to Spain last year, correct? Primavera? Yes, we were we got contacted to play Primavera and um it paid for the trip. I mean, I mean, how great is that? And we've also started recording our own um music. Uh hopefully uh COVID will uh ease up some or we'll figure out some safe way to record because right when it hit we were just about to go into the studio we had enough uh new songs that we we could record an album you know, it's put um, out a single recently however and previous a couple previously yes that was uh previously unreleased uh demo we'd done and uh how that happened uh um this year uh of course, in Athens, they can have the big Halloween par- uh, parade, which is called Wild Rumpus, which is just this fabulous thing. It's a huge, huge Wild Rumpus party. Is <laughs> have you been to it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so you know, it's like uh, yes. it's, a, it's a kind of an all-ages thing. It's kind of like an anything-goes kind of costume thing, as long as, you know, it's not X-rated or whatever. Um, it's... Uh, just fabulous and every club in town has bands well every you know a lot of people were kind of pressed that wild rampus parade was not going to happen because of covid and uh the uh director of that timmy conley who's a wonderful musician and guitarist um he contacted us and said listen would you like to uh come and um uh, tape a song for uh for us, we've decided to put put it out as a Halloween, like a like a TV special, but it's going to be on you know internet prep platforms. I think they ran it on uh, three different platforms, and uh, I was like thinking, gosh, we haven't played together since February, but we do have this demo. I, I started thinking maybe I can make a video for it, but I. I'm really busy right now with my job. Maybe, uh, um, you know, Dan Acor, you know, this he's offering to shoot us uh, play. Maybe he'd be willing to shoot some footage for me, and then uh, we can pay him, and uh, I can edit. And so uh, I said that, and then um, I talked to Dan. He said, do you have a script? And I said, well, yeah, actually, I have made a simple script, and I sent it to him and he looked at it and he had some uh, great people 
lined up to help him, you know, with this project for this thing. He said, we've, we've had a meeting and we've decided, well, we'd like to make this video for you. And, uh, Excellent. Well, while, while Rempus was going to help him a little. And so, uh, it, we had to make it socially distanced, uh, which was not as hard as you think, you know, really, mm-hmm. um, since it's, uh, you know, outside. So, uh, we filmed most of it in, um, Jason and Kay's yard, which is like a microcosm, like, a. You know, this barn shed on one side is painted with these colorful props. And then on the other side of the property, there's this uh, shed which has been overgrown by bamboo, which has since been torn down. Uh, but the bamboo's like growing through the shed. And then um, coming along the edge of the property, there are these huge electrical pylons. So we were able to do most of the stuff with us there. Uh, our drummer, uh, Joe Rowe, he could not make it that day. Uh, so they went and filmed him with the uh, snare drum outside his house. And then the art car, um, that was uh, by a uh, friend of ours. Uh, uh, the whole band and a pylon as well. Um, uh, Greg, Greg Baldish, he is from um, Florida originally, but uh, he's worked with Michael Lahusky, the bass player for Pylon. He'd like bought this old, <coughs> excuse me, this old car, which was really beat up, and he turned it into what they call luckily an art car. He pulled the engine and he sanded it and he painted it, you know, with like cheap paint and he bought a gyrate uh, license plate from the state of Georgia. He rigged Fantastic. up all these lights. <laughs> I know. Why did I think of doing that, you know? And hey, so you wrote had, the album. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <You> did good. <laughs> well, he's a fan, and I, that's cool. I, somebody sent me their old license plate from their car in Tennessee. This is pylon on it. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> I've never had enough extra money to like afford a vanity play. So it's cool. He gave me his old one. <clears throat> so anyway, he went and uh, filmed uh, Greg with this car for the second day and also did, you know, they did some stop action um, shooting, you know, for the film. I think it turned out really well for, you know, no, it, it's fantastic, and it's available. Um, uh, Pylon page, YouTube, uh, yeah, yeah, etc. It's um, called no. uh, compression, and uh, then we also put it up on uh, uh, Bandcamp. <clears throat> you know, so you can either watch it on the YouTube, but if you want to take it around with you, you can spend a buck and buy it off of Bandcamp. And spend a buck and buy it off of Bandcamp, y'all. Yeah, and I put that it's a free download if you buy one of our T-shirts. We're using all the money we're going to put into our recording budget. So, Excellent. We'll have to check back in with you after uh, everything calms down and y'all have recorded. Um, yeah. Right now, I want to get to the most recent exciting news, uh, the Pylon Box. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. And do not let me forget to ask you about the coffee. <laughs> uh, well, 
I, you're talking to the wrong person. To oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you took the pen and write that down. Opalon <laughs> box. This is a, uh, this is like having the longest gestation birth of all time. But, uh, you know, I was telling you that I started thinking, you know, after uh, the DFA reissues came out about doing vinyl. And, uh, but our business wasn't in the right place. So I did spend some time untangling it. And uh, when I got it to a good spot, you know, it was like all of a sudden one day, Jason's at practice with me at Pylon Reenactment Society. And, you know, P is an audio engineer. Um, he works for uh, he works at Chase, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He works for Chase. He's got a degree in audio engineering from Berkeley. And uh, I'd work with him in the studio a lot and knew how good he was. He said, if you ever think about reissuing Pylon, um, Gyrate and Chomp, please let me have the first crack at it. Well, I was like thinking, well, all right then. <laughs> I said, I've just filed it away, and uh, um, so one day I, I talked to him, and I said, look, I think I'm at the point now I could think about doing this. Will you help me? So we just started gathering tapes together. Um, <clears throat> a lot had to be baked and then dig digitized. Uh, tapes of that era, um, the tape is starting to flake off, you know, kind of like uh, – you know, movies from the early silent era are disintegrating. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> but as is, crazy as it sounds, putting them in the oven and baking them will uh, stop that process. <laughs> yeah, they readheres, re you know, the magnetic material. <clears throat> so, and you have to take them off within a certain amount of time. It's mm. like a really crazy thing. So he was going through all these reels and reels and reels and, um, then um, he digitized them all at a much higher level. And then we were like getting people coming forward with tapes um, that he uh, also digitized like cassette recordings. And uh, we realized that we had more than just those albums, you know, like maybe we could have a double album of, uh, you know, extra material, you know, like uh you know, not only the singles, but we could have, you know, some rarities or whatever. So I was kind of calling in my head that double album, Singles and Rarities. So then uh, he had a uh, really good friend, Bill Levinson, who's a box set guru. Uh, he worked on VU. He worked on Eric Clapton's Crossroads. Wow. Um, he kind of owed Jason sort of a favor. Um, for doing something for him and Jason asked him to come and talk to us. We had lunch with Bill Levison. He lives in Georgia and he was giving us advice. He was giving me advice about how to approach a label. Um, we needed to come up with the business plan, you know, uh, you know, you need to kind of suggest what songs you would do and how, you know, it would be packaged and this thing. So I kind of knew from talking to him, you know, what I needed to do. He 
came and talked to us twice. Uh, I got a lawyer um, on the suggestion of uh, David Barbie from the Athens uh, Music Business School because uh, the lawyer. Is he teaching been, now? Uh, <laughs> is David Barbie names? Oh, David Barbie. Yes, yeah, he teaching Barbie? now. Mm-hmm. David Barbie's still, you know, he's the he's uh, the head over at the um, Music Business School at UGA. That's fantastic. Uh, for our listeners, David Barbie started out in uh, Mercyland. Was that his first band? Yes, he was in Mercyland. And, um, uh, he moved on. To, he actually played in Sugar with Bob Mould. Um, yes. did freelance production. Um, actually, my band uh, recorded our second single with David. Um, and then uh, went on to, what was he in after that? Refresh my memory. He, start, he started Chase Park, correct? Yes, he started Chase Park Transduction. So he's uh, Jason's boss over there. Uh, And my husband, Bob, used to work with him years and years and years ago uh, at Kinko's back, uh, you know, when we had babies, you know. I think uh, I remember his song, When Annabella Cries, you know. Uh Not too long after that, I had Hannah. So... um, I've known him a long time. He's he's one of the good guys. He really is. He's fantastic. Amazing engineer. Um, fantastic musician. All around great guy. Um, oh, he, he is. Sorry, I wanted so, to um, give him a shout out to the listeners. Um, so uh, I'm sorry for uh, interrupting you. No, 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 no. Uh, that's a good interruption. Uh, <laughs> you know, we got to expound about David Barbie. So, uh, you know. Uh, I went forward and I just started talking to labels and uh, I just talked to labels I wanted to talk to uh, either through reputation or like the product on the labels. And uh, one of uh, the three he put in offers and I didn't even really talk to that many was New West Records. And I, I came to them because I was a friend of Vic Chestnut and also they're just released or were about to release um, a box set by uh, the drummer for Palon Reenactment Society, Joe Rowe, who was in the glands. And so uh, I saw what a beautiful job they were doing. And uh, uh, we were on tour, uh, Palon Reenactment Society was, and uh, we played in Nashville and we did a uh, um, an interview at WX. XNA uh, with Brady Brock, who's uh, vice president of publicity at New West and uh, uh, also a DJ at WXNA. And so I did an interview with him and uh, uh, he, he at that interview, he was like, if you ever want to uh, reissue Pylon, come and talk to me. Um and I, I realized that, you know, this label actually knows who we are. I mean, I think, uh, you know, they have the reputation of maybe being more about like alt country or whatever, but really they have a lot of different types of music on this label and they do a fantastic, beautiful job with all of them. So it really narrowed it down. Um, it came down to them and, and what really swung it over, besides, you know, uh, the beautiful job they were doing, the other labels were located a long way from Athens. 
And I knew if we had a problem, I wouldn't have to get on a plane. Um, George uh, Senior, he told me, George Fontaine, he said, if you ever have a problem, all you got to do is come and knock on this store and come and talk to me. And, you know, that's uh, there's something really attractive about that, you know. That's I wonderful. can get in my car in 15, 20 minutes. I can knock on their door. Well, not during COVID, but you know what I mean. Right. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they're right here. Uh, they, they can um, help me figure it out. So uh, it was great working with them. They have a fantastic team, top to bottom. I can't say enough about um, this label, about how wonderful they've been. The product is gorgeous, and I can't wait to see it in person. But if the pictures do it any justice, um, it's just beautiful. So let's break down what it comes with. Remastered and reissued vinyl versions of Chomp and Gyrate. Um, you've got the Raz tape, which we talked about earlier. It was recorded live in y'all's house in Athens. Um, and the extras disc, correct? That's correct. And, and the uh, best part is the Pylon book. Tell us a little bit about compiling this book, because y'all are always a very visual band, all artists. So I imagine there was a plethora of material to choose from. Oh, that was like, uh, we could have put out a 400-page book easily. Um, you know, several years back, Michael came to Curtis and I, and he said, uh, hey, Special Collections at EGA has approached me, and um, they're trying to build the collection of uh, local musicians, uh, things here at the uh, museum. And uh, it's at the uh, Russell Library at UGA. Um, it's kind of ever located near the UGA School of Music too. So um, I have boxes and boxes and boxes, just enormous boxes of things. I had some clothes. I had um, some of my instruments and whistles and, you know, things like that. And just the idea of going through all that stuff is overwhelming. We were in the discussion stage of actually doing box. Um, <clears throat> Brady had come down from Nashville to talk to us and he said he brought in a couple of uh, music books, you know, bands that put out, you know, books about themselves, you know, freestanding. He said, I'd like to include something in box. And uh, we initially started talking about it. Um, Michael was thinking it was going to be something like a 32-page brochure, like a tour program or something uh, that would be in here along with the albums. But he didn't mean that. He wanted like a a history of the band so he hired a history you know he hired a writer to write a history uh he did the research I, I scanned in all the articles that I could find that I had so he had you know good research to go to and he talked to each of us individually and we were allowed to um <coughs> go in and make corrections um then uh <clears throat> He brought in um, uh, Henry Owings, who had worked with us on Pylon Live, uh, who's also a well-known graphic designer, to come in and do the heavy lifting for Michael on the graphics. Uh, Michael was in charge of the look. Um, we had a lot of uh, this information 
you know, to go from, but it's quite a bit of work to put something like this together. So Henry's responsible for laying it out and also um, keeping true to uh, Pylon's aesthetic. I believe Michael made a, uh, like a guide for him, like point size. And, you know, there's rules like, you know, Pylon would never use more than three point sizes on a page, that type <laughs> of thing. And, I love it. <laughs> and, it, you know, this microgramma bold extended, you know, for the bigger things. Of course, you can't have the print like that that you're going to read in the history or nobody will be able to read it. So we wanted a very clean look. And uh, then, you know, at that point, I started going through boxes and boxes of ephemera, um, calling out the best stuff. Michael was doing the same thing. I would go over and help him. And then uh, we got it all together and brought it over uh, to New West in Athens. And Brady came down from Nashville. And I think they were kind of taken aback because we had an entire room full of this stuff. I mean, it's not like <laughs> the end of Ra Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's crazy. <laughs> and Randy's sons had brought in, you know, like um, eight or ten of his guitars. I think that maybe there are photos of four or five of them in there. And, you know, Randy's uh, motors, uh, motocross jacket and, Michael had brought in his Boy Scout jacket. It is his Boy Scout jacket that his mother stayed the patches on. I brought wow. in dresses. Uh, then some of our things were already in the collection of special collections because they inherited the Georgia Music Hall of Fame stuff. So they had Curtis's drums. Uh, they had my dress. And they wouldn't let it out of there. They couldn't let us check it out. So... Really, your own stuff? <laughs> yes. Once it's donated it in there, you know, it's, it's, in, it's, in, the, it's in the thing. That's great. Unless, unless it's a special loan to somebody. And so uh, Jason Thrasher, the photographer, went over there. Um, Jason Neesmith helped me set up the drums until Curtis could get there. And uh, we tried to set it up just like our stage set up. You know, we had the bass and the guitar and um, the drums and my dress. And um, so he photographed that. And then we went over to New West and photographed items all day until like 11 p.m. <clears throat> and uh, Henry Owings uh, scanned like for hours and hours, uh, uh, like uh, posters. And uh, then they had a very, you know, rich load of material to work from. And uh, Henry's the one that decided a lot of what was used in the actual book along with Michael. Um, but I, I helped find some of that stuff. And of course, uh, that stuff, a lot of it belonged to uh, Pylon or individual members of Pylon. So, uh, you know, we ended up with a 200-page book. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, there's also a, a lot of testimonials from uh, fans of the bands, bands that you've inspired, toured with. Name a couple of those. Oh, uh, well, I don't want to leave anybody out, but, you know, of course, it's got, like, uh, uh, Kate Pearson from the B-52s, Fred Schneider. Uh, it's got Hugo and uh, John from the Gang of Four. 
Um, it's got Sleater Kenny. Uh, it's got Interpol. It's got Bradford from Deer Hunter. Um, it's just got all of these amazing people. Um, friends of mine, like a writer from New York, he wrote our um, cover story for New York Rocker. Karen Moline uh, has the story in there. Um, and, you know, the photographs and the way things are paired together is just amazing how it turned out. I cannot wait to see that. Um, now, you they're also released on uh, CD, correct? Yes. After, you know, we did the release on, uh, and the pre-orders on vinyl, we had a lot of fans who were very upset because there was not going to be a version of this on CD. So uh, I just honestly, I was like, this isn't my money. This is New West money. Um, I was just like uh, <clears throat> placating them, telling them, well, you know, you'll be, you could get downloads, but no, they wanted, you know, the actual product. So New West on their own uh, read all of this and realized that there was um, an audience for this and they, uh, God bless them. They listen to our fans. So it is going to have a CD version, but because it wasn't planned that way, it won't be coming out until um, um, mid-February at the earliest, late March at the latest. But sometime okay. at that point, it'll be coming out. And it's going to be the full-size book and that was a my next question. slip case. <laughs> okay. And... It's going to have pockets in the back of the book with the original artwork for the CDs. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and it, it will be less expensive, too, because, you know, it doesn't have four vinyl al albums. It's got four CDs. So it's maybe 60 or $70 less expensive. Mm -hmm. well, that is wonderful. And y'all, I, I, I said, uh, promised I wouldn't... Uh, leave without talking about the coffee you said that no was that not uh did you not participate in that in what in the coffee i'm just curious how y'all worked y'all uh, collaborated with jittery joe's correct uh we did collaborate with jittery joe's what is the uh, process of getting your own coffee i'm so fascinated by this <laughs> well you know Dana did my friend that uh you enjoyed his uh intro to M-Train, uh, he's in Palon Reenactment Society. He has a cup of coffee every morning at Jittery Joe's, or almost every morning. And he noticed that there were coffees there being sold by bands like Drive-By Truckers and Kishibashi. And he said, you should look into having your own coffee. And I was like, whoa, I never even thought about that I mean you know, I thought that was something that you had to ask you know be asked to do right. and uh so I contacted Brady and I said uh Damon thinks that we should have uh, our own coffee and Jittery Joe's here and I sent him a page or something for the web and I think I copied in the band too at this point yeah I did what do you think about this and he thought it was actually a really good idea. So uh, he contacted uh, Jittery Joe's and I, I contacted our lawyer and uh, they had to make a contract um, with each other because it is a business, you know, to license it. But we weren't, 
you know, going to just let them decide on the coffee. And they wouldn't have anyway. They said, well, if it's got your name on it, you have to pick it. And so they had a discussion with us. What kind of coffee do you like to drink? And we all kind of like coffee that was dark, uh, but not too strong. And we also uh, were thinking it should be more of an everyday coffee. Mm -hmm. So they set up a tasting for us and we tasted it, you know, tasted the coffees. And we all came to the same conclusion that this number two um, coffee was the one for us. And uh, they told us it was a a three bean bean blend. some of it was fair trade and some of it was like rainforest protected. Um, but they're not like, I think some were from Africa. Some of them are from South America, mm-hmm. uh, they're, but they're all uh, Arabica beans. And we were, they said, here, take some home, um, drink it for a week or two and make sure that this is what you are comfortable with and we all loved it and I gave like a sample to the new west office and they all liked it too so then the decision was made you know this was going to be the coffee and it was kind of a no-brainer to call it buzz (laughs) 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 brilliant (laughs) which if if you hear the song you know you'll get it but also you know like buzz you know and so uh um, I like the idea of having an everyday object in someone's house. It's almost like ready-made art. So uh, mm-hmm. Michael came up with the design that uh, uh, fit in with our aesthetics. Uh, it's a gorgeous it, packaging. It is. And, um, you know, they kind of getting away from doing cans so much because mm-hmm. uh, uh, they're getting harder to get. But also, if this ends up in the landfill, it's not as big of a footprint. And if you live locally, you can take this bag into the Jittery Joe's Roaster and they'll fill it back up for you. I can't imagine throwing the bag away. Like, I would pin it to the wall. It's so Like, you know, it's a work of art. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't and worry the, too much about the landfills. Yeah. Well, I would hope that. But, you know, this... uh. And right now, I don't know when you're going to air this, but they're having a Black Friday special. We'll have oh, nice. to go look at that, you know. Um, so we've got the, oh, I meant to ask, um, is there, are there any plans for chain reissue at some point? Um, we're looking into that. Uh, it's like uh, this uh, original uh, thing here. It was just planned to be focusing on what we call Pylon 1, uh, which right. is, you know, like 78 to 83, because we do have one track of uh, the band before they got me from 1978. <clears throat> um, so uh, the vault's cleared out. Any other surprises maybe waiting for later? Pardon? I said, are the vaults, did the box set clean out the vaults as far as? Does rarities go, or a few surprises left for possible future release? Um, there's some stuff out there. Uh, Jason and I are going through that right now. Do you think people would be interested in um, 
heck yeah, I think people would be interested, <laughs> starting with this people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's at least one, right? <laughs> exactly. And if the, the amazing press has been anything to go by from uh, the box, I would say absolutely. Um, because it's interesting, in this course of this conversation, we've talked, you know, y'all, Pylon keeps, every new generation is, you know, there's a moment where I read a review where the uh, record store uh, employee said it was frustrating when print, uh, Gyrate and Chomp were out of print because there were just certain records that you wanted to recommend to the people that come into the, you know, and I, having worked in a record store before, I can attest to this. There are certain people that come in and just go, give me something cool. You know, what are you listening? What do you, you know, give me something, whatever. And, and this uh, writer said that when he, that was him, it was, chomp and gyrate um and so and seeing you know working at college radio as i do um every generation that somebody discovers pylon and is like oh man you know where's this band been you know um and so absolutely yeah i think there's an incredible audience out there for it um so if you don't mind i want to finish off my questions you beautifully answered so many of them before i even asked um but I have a few uh, left. We'll just, just do a short answer on this one. Um, so uh, if you don't mind, what do you attribute Pylon's longevity to? Um, well, I'm not exactly sure, uh, but I think, you know, there's a couple of things in there. One of which is uh, um, I think it does have the element where it makes people want to move. Uh, also, there's something authentic about it. It's uh, not something that was like cooked up in a lab somewhere. And they said, <laughs> oh, the teenagers are going to like this. This is something. Right. <laughs> it's just like the result of these four particular people, you know, making these sounds. And uh, it. Uh, I, th- I think it's maybe appealing to you because uh it sounds like something maybe you could do. Maybe I could have a band. And mm-hmm. uh, I've talked to any number of bass players over the years who, in particular, bass players who have gone, the very first song I ever learned to play was the Pylon <laughs> song. <laughs> well, the bass lines are so iconic. And just that rhythm section together with, the, I mean, Curtis Crow is one of the steadiest drummers I've ever seen in my life. It's so powerful. Um I came across, uh, was waiting in the line 40 watt for a Hetch Hetchy show one time. And uh, one of my favorite Athens bands uh, happened to be practicing across the street, Chickasaw Mud Puppies. And uh, I wandered over there and normally they were a two piece, but this particular night they had a bass player and a drummer and uh, Curtis was the drummer. And I was ah. like, what? And uh, I used to carry a tape recorder with me everywhere. Um, and so pulled it out of my backpack, hit record. And uh, it, it was amazing because I'd followed the pups like they were the dead. Um, and, uh, you know, like just loved everything they did. But, you know, they were two-piece. Like Brant would stomp and Ben would play the guitar. And, you know, they both sang. I never saw them with a the drummer until I saw this practice with Curtis. And it was unbelievable um, just to see, you know, those two working together. Um so yeah, uh, fantastic. That's a great story about the bass players because those bass lines are amazingly iconic. Um, now, what uh, advice do you have for aspiring bands and artists? Um, 
Well, I guess, I guess first, uh, don't be afraid, uh, go for it. And, uh, second of all, um, take care of your own business because there's always somebody who's going to be willing to take care of your business for you. That might not be <laughs> the way that you would like it done. And, uh, Thirdly, I guess just be yourself and, and don't forget who you really are, you know? Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Okay. Um, and this is kind of a multi-tiered question. Um, uh, current, what uh, current uh, acts you like and um, are there any acts that you think um, take the pylon mantle in any way and carry on kind of the, what y'all were trying to do? Uh, let me think about this for a second. Uh, Bands that I really like a lot. Well, I mean, British bands. Uh, there's uh, two that I can think of: uh, shopping and um, dry cleaning. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Two separate uh, bands. Two separate bands, and I think okay. dry dry cleaning is much newer. And shopping, I've seen them perform. Actually, I did one song with them once, and. They are great. Uh, they're from London. Uh -huh. uh, locally. Um, yes, definitely need the t uh, Athens uh, yeah. insight. Yeah, I did a, uh, I judged a battle of the teenage bands last year before COVID hit. And uh -huh. uh, I'm trying to think. Um, Fishbug. Okay. Fishbug? Fishbug. Okay, they're very good. They are. I'm. I'm sorry. It, it took oh, that wasn't. A, that wasn't. No, no, no. That wasn't a judgment call. I was just making sure I got the name right. <laughs> yeah. So let me say this over again, and pull it out. Two of the best local young bands at a uh, battle of the teenage bands I saw last year were A.D. Blanco and uh, Fishbug. They were Fishbug. wonderful. Okay. Yeah. But actually, everyone was wonderful. They were all great. And that, that's the hardest part of judging battles of the band, isn't it? <laughs> you want to give when them all came, the prize. <laughs> exactly. Because they were all so good. But what it came down to, Fishbug played all original material. Awesome. So are the rest of a lot of them play covers? Um, or one cover. Gotcha. Or whatever, you know. So that uh, that swung it for me. Well, so final question of the night: um, one song that can your though if you had to somebody in front of you that hadn't heard any pylon and you had one song to play them to convey everything about pylon that you wanted to convey, which song would it be? <laughs> <laughs> You're so bad. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> But notice well, I phrased it so you didn't have to answer what your favorite pylon song was. I wouldn't do that to anybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> well, I couldn't answer that myself. <laughs> no, no. Well, I think it's an all-over song. I would have to pick uh, Crazy. Okay. But if I had to pick an all-over dance song, I would have to pick Danger. Danger is my favorite pylon song, so I'm glad you said that. <laughs> it just is so propulsive, and like, oh, I love it. And seeing it live is just transcendent. Um, yeah, I, 
go, go to other place when you see Danger played live. Um, any, I want to thank you so much for such a wonderful interview um, and for a- answering most of my questions before I even had to ask them. <laughs> ah. and, uh, we'll be keeping in touch with you um, and I want, might want to follow up when uh, any new uh, happenings in Pylon world. Um, but uh, anything like to say in party? Oh, I would like to say it's been really nice talking to you, Michael. It's been fantastic talking to you. Um, and we will um, uh, obviously send you a link to the recording once it's finished um, and wish you the best. Y'all stay safe, okay? Okay, you too. Bye-bye. And I'm going to be at the first Pylon Reenactment Society show post-COVID. Yay! I'll and I'm, I'm bringing Dylan and Eddie with me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Y'all will be yeah, out, on, out on the town. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you have a nice night. It was such a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a Comfort Monk production.